Bienvenidos and welcome to the Voces Podcast. My name is Ana Lucia Lopez Reboredo, and I am your host. Today's guest is Hana Chunkan Euro. Hana is a Chinese Costa Rican Ashkenazi Jew of color. She was raised in the northern suburbs of Chicago, and after four years in Minnesota, she returned to the Windy City to begin her career as a math teacher. Hana attributes her love for the radical Jewish community to Habonim Dror Camp Tavor, the progressive Jewish summer camp that shaped much of her childhood and young adulthood. Hana is passionate about collective living, liberatory education, and youth empowerment. Welcome, Hana. We're so excited to have you. I've been really looking forward to our conversation for many reasons. And so I'd love for us to kind of just give you the opportunity to center us and to ground us in a little bit more background as to who you are and, and thinking about identity. What are identities that inform you and that really root your existence? Yeah, well, thank you for having me. So my name is Hana Chongkan Yero. Uh, my family background is that on my mother's side, I'm Ashkenazi Jewish meaning my great-grandmother's generation came from Ukraine, Eastern Europe area, and immigrated to Chicago, to the United States. So that's that's my mother's side. And then on my dad's side, ancestrally Chinese, and then my grandmother's generation immigrating from China to Costa Rica. So in Costa Rica, my grandma and my grandfather were married, had all their children, raised their five children who look Chinese, but grew up culturally Costa Rican, speaking Spanish. My Chinese Costa Rican father met my Ashkenazi Jewish mother in Costa Rica, moved back to Chicago and, and created our, our very mixed family here in the United States. So thinking about like, yeah, what it means to come through so many levels of, of immigration is, is that I, I am definitely a mix. As a younger person, I might've seen that through like a deficit standpoint being like, okay, like it's hard to, to land on a solid understanding of who I am, or there's not like a quick answer um, to when, you know, an annoying person asks, like, what are you? Like, there's, there's no quick answer to that. But as, as, a, as an adult, I think I really have come to appreciate that my family history is a history of, of resiliency and um, immigration and exploration and, and being will, willing to be flexible to the environment we're in and, and, and just moving through these, like, malleable, like, man-made structures of borders and identity and making it much more fluid is beautiful, I think. And, I, and I've come to appreciate that. I also in recent years, like as I'm learning more about my Jewish side and thinking about like Yiddish history, the, the Yiddish concept of, I think it's called Doikite, the Jewish concept of, the Yiddish concept of here is that like my home is where I am, is the land I'm on right now. And my children and my, the people who come after me might call other places home and the people who came before me called other places home, but, it, but that's okay. And that's beautiful. And I will move through this world through the, through the malleable definitions of what home is. Wow. There's a, there's a line you said that really sticks with me about your family story being a story of resilience, of migration, of exploration. It hits so close to home. And, and I just think about your grandparents and I'm just so interested if you could tell us a little bit more about specifically your grandmother, who I know has had such an impact on your life. My grandmother lived in Costa Rica. It's hard for me to really imagine what her life was like as, as, a, as a young immigrant who like can't, I don't think she can read in Spanish, but like was able to raise a family and, and run up. She ran a general store in Nicoya in the town in Costa Rica. 
that we were living in and like had great material success and social success and, and just had a hard life as, as an underdog in many ways. She, she's really like the matriarch of our family and, and come, just trying to appreciate that with the understanding that she won't be around forever. Most of the grandchildren, they all call her abuela. But for some reason, I think just like the being in a different country or, or maybe like when we were all younger, for, there was like maybe a little bit of an, of an effort to be like, okay, call your Chinese grandmother Popo. But it has quickly become that like all the grandchildren who live in Costa Rica call her abuela. But since me and my sister and I guess the few other grandchildren who live outside of Costa Rica, we've just maintained the, the calling her Popo. So it's interesting when we, when, we go, when we go back to Costa Rica and talk to her, there's all these divides. We speak in Spanish. She speaks in Spanish with a Cantonese accent. I speak in Spanish with an American English accent, but I really value that relationship. And she is so loving. Mm. The way you talk about your grandmother, it's, it's truly a love story. I can hear, I can hear the love, the passion, the admiration you have for her. And to be able to also just know like what success and what that looks like can, can mean so many different things from so many different people and depending on what angle you're looking at it. And I think, you know, there's, there's clearly, when you talk about that story of resilience within your family, I hear it in that story of your grandmother. Speaking about love stories, there's one that we kind of hopped over or that I kind of hopped over in the beginning when you were talking about your parents, your your mother, your American mother living in Costa Rica and then meeting your father. And I'd love to know if you know any of this, the reasons why your parents decided to leave Costa Rica to move to the United States when they could have very easily been remaining in paradise. So just curious if, if you've, if they've talked to you about that and if you've ever wondered what your life might be like, if you would have remained in Costa Rica. Yeah. So, okay. So my mother was in Costa Rica in the eighties as part of the Peace Corps. So she was living there for two years and, and teaching English and, and, and in the, in Nicoya, in the town of Guanacaste, which is the province of Costa Rica, which is where my dad is from. And they met and they um, had this two-year relationship in Nicoya in Costa Rica. I think the process was hard. And I don't know the specifics of how they made that decision to come back to the United States. But I think a lot about how me and my sister's life would be different. Because we would be like, you know, maybe physically the same people. But we like could have easily been raised in Nicoya. So we really could have been raised there. And we could have raised, been raised with the cousins. And I could have been like, you know, more culturally Costa Rican and speaking Spanish. And like, you know, learning English as my second language. And like maybe like materially the same, but my life would have been very, very different. When I talk to my mom about it, she reflects about how it probably would have been much harder to raise us Jewish in the small town in Costa Rica. And that there would have have to been major efforts to like go to San Jose to the capital to find Jewish community there. And then, of course, it also probably would have been a little bit more conservative, orthodox than and we were raised reform in Chicago, you know, like there probably isn't a reform. There wasn't a reform community in Costa Rica in the early 2000s. That was probably part of it is like the, the, the path of least resistance to raise us Jewishly was, was in the United States, but it really could have been, it could have been that I was just raised in, in Costa Rica and I would have been a different person. And it's hard to know exactly, but it would have been different. The what if migration game or the what if we would not have migrated game is a game that I play often <laughs> with my with my siblings. And it's funny, I think the first time I returned to Peru, I was constantly, not just myself, my my sister 
and I were constantly kind of like dazing off into space and we would catch each other and we would just kind of wake, wake each other up from that daydream and say, you know, you were thinking right about what life would have been like. And we would just nod and say, yeah, uh, which is, I think something that's very real for people where migration is a big part of their family narrative. And, and for Jews, that's a big part of our narrative, you know, modern migration, modern Jewish migration. There's just no denying that our life's could have looked so different depending on where it was that our parents, grandparents, great-grandparents were born and if we would have remained in those places. So I think that that's, that's, a real, that's a real experience that members of our community, both in the Latino, Latinx, and Jewish community, really share uh, a lot of that, that wonder, that curiosity. And so despite you having grown up, being born in the United States and having grown up in the United States, you have a really strong Costa Rica, like Costa Ricense identity, Costa Rican identity. It's, you know, when you introduce yourself, you identify as a Chinese, Costa Rican, Ashkenazi, Jewish woman of color. So it's not something that is just kind of falls by the wayside. It's central to who you are. And I'm just so curious to know how it is that your parents support the realization of your own Costa Rican identity outside of Costa Rica. Yeah, it's, it's definitely had to be an effort. And what's interesting about, yeah, my, my Costa Rican identity isn't obvious. So it's what, like, I have to, I have to reveal it to people. As a mixed race person, as someone who's like maybe ethnically ambiguous, I do not enjoy being asked, like, what are you as, as one of the first questions? That's not something I would enjoy as a, as a first get to know you question, but it's like something I'm definitely excited to talk about. Like my ancestry, my heritage is important and it's not like shameful or annoying to talk about. It's exciting. It's just like not the first thing I want white people to ask me about. So it is this, it's this level of like, okay, if I'm, I'm making friends with a new person, like we, we've established a certain level of trust where I'm like really excited to tell you about my family history and talk about what like my Costa Rican Latina identity means to me. It's exciting in that sense also that sharing my Costa Rican identity is a symbol of like forming new relationships that are healthy and exciting. I speak, I speak Spanish, like definitely not as well as English, but like I do, I understand Spanish and I grew up speaking English and Spanish at the same time. So like as a young infant baby child, I was, I was learning Spanish and English at the same time. Like maybe even technically I was like learning my first words were in Spanish, but like definitely both languages were being spoken to me. And I would speak both languages as like a developing young baby child. And then of course, over time, our family stopped speaking Spanish as much in the home. And it had to be, it was like sometimes a battle, especially as I was um, like a, like a child that started to understand the influence of the world that like Spanish was not valued in larger society that, that I was definitely, I definitely internalized that. and was like, I don't like Spanish. I don't want to speak Spanish. I only want to speak English, you know, as a young kid. And my, my parents really tried to fight that. And of course they like wanted to, to raise the status of Spanish and, and speak Spanish with me, but it's exhausting and it's hard. And I think it's a challenge that a lot of immigrant families face, which is like how to preserve our language in the dominant world that doesn't value it. So I was lucky to um, be part of a dual language program when I was in elementary school. And that really, I think, helped me hang on to my Costa Rican identity. But my Costa Rican identity is is cultural. Like it's not so physical. Like I don't experience the same sort of discrimination or oppression that people who look Latino in the United States experience. And a lot of in the United States, like minority identity, I think does have to do with the fact of, of sharing similar forms of oppression. So it's like, I don't have, I don't have that experience and that, you know, is, is okay. So I'm, I'm relating to my Costa Rican identity, I think through food, <laughs> through my, the way my parents um, cook in my house. We, we eat a lot of Costa Rican food. The, re 
the rice we cook always the Chinese way. We cook that in the rice cooker, but but a lot a lot of stir fries, a lot of meats, a lot of rice and beans. Oh, I think that's fascinating. I think that's wonderful. I mean, and it doesn't it doesn't surprise me when you talked about sometimes that after a while Spanish subsides. It's hard. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. And it's, you know, parents who who speak multiple languages in the home, I give them a lot of props because there's a desire to to sustain culture. And there's when you've got a lot of things up against you, when a lot of people are just reminding you that this is America and that we speak English here, you know, that those are real things. Those are real messages. And it's also as a kid, uh, it's you start to you, the messages that we receive are really, really intense about what's valuable, what's less and. And so I think it's also interesting because for you, we've talked about, because for you, it's a very specific, it's a very unique experience. Um, you just mentioned right now that when you reveal to others that you're costarricense, that you're Costa Rican, it's something that you get to do as like a introduction or second conversation, because it's not something that people could automatically assume by looking at you, because for most people, when they think of what a Latino person looks like, they are looking for a different presentation, even though folks who've spent any significant time in Latin America or from Latin America know that what makes a Latin American Latin American is it's undefinable because we are, we come from all over, we come from different parts of the world, all in search of work and that dream of the new world. I think it's interesting and I'm curious because not just in the United States, my people not assume that you're Costa Rican, but also in Costa Rica. So I'm curious if you've ever had those experiences and, and if your father has ever had those experiences, because he's kind of navigated that his whole life, being born in Costa Rica, raised in Costa Rica, falling in love in Costa Rica. So I'm curious if you could add a little bit of context about that. Yeah. I mean, I think my dad's experience growing up in Costa Rica was that of, of an immigrant. Like, I think his family were treated like outsiders and he was, you know, was happy there. I think he had a good and happy childhood, but his family were Los Chinos, you know, like his nickname among all his friends was Chino. And, but yeah, I think, I think they were treated as outsiders, but were able to thrive. It's hard to compare like the racism of Costa Rica to the racism of the United States in terms of like what's morally better or worse. Materially, the the practice of racism in Costa Rica, I think is much more outward. Like again, it's that just like the nickname of the biggest most obvious physical feature about you that you will just be give like, you know, and that's not just racism. It's also like of every aspect, but like that's culturally part of Costa Rica. So it was like, it's obvious. It's not hidden in the same way that racism in the United States and especially recently, like can be trying to, to ignore pretending that it doesn't actually exist, but in Costa Rica it's outright. So I think my dad knew that growing up that, that he's an outsider, um, but was able to find a home there also. I think I didn't know that. Like, I was born and raised within the racism of the United States and like traveling back to Costa Rica. Sometimes the racism of Costa Rica can be more jarring, just like, yeah, existing in Costa Rica with as a child thinking like, Oh, we are like going home. Like I have seen the racism of the United States where my dad has an accent in the United States. So that makes him other. He looks like a Chinese man in the United States. So that makes him other, but he was born and raised in Costa Rica. Okay. We're going back to Costa Rica. He speaks Spanish fluently he knows the culture of Costa Rica really well like that's going to be a place where I'm going to see him be more accepted and 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 thrive there and in some ways yes like in some ways like he can navigate the culture really well there and like speak Spanish and knows how to like bargain and like get us to where we need to go but there's also just assumptions that he's not from there and like one one experience that I'm remembering is just a grocery store interaction in Nicoya in the hometown 
where he was born and raised. And we were checking out and the cashier said something that my dad just didn't hear and so asked him to repeat it or like or there was some miscommunication. And the cashier's first reaction was like, oh, hablas espanol? Like you, are, you probably just don't understand me because you don't speak Spanish. But truly, like if he was speaking, my dad must have spoke Spanish with like such fluidity, like the accent of specifically of that small town he was speaking, but still just because he was Chinese. And also he was probably dressed a little bit like a gringo, you know, like he was coming, like he had lived in the United States for like 20 years at that point. He was, had his white wife and his Chinese kids. Like I'm, there was a lot of physical markers othering him, but like culturally and with the language, he, he was home, but that wasn't, it wasn't enough. And, you know, it was, it was a small interaction and my dad, I mean, for, for my memory of it, it, it was shocking to me. It, like, I know, I still remember it was a, it was a quick thing. My dad just was like, see, like, and then continued and then it was okay. But it was just those interactions being like, even if this is the place that you call home the most, that, that level of other othering will, will always be there. Ooh, thank you for that perspective, Hannah. I appreciate you bringing in the complicated nature of how racism spews its head in so many elements and also how different it is in the United States versus in Latin America. I think it's just thinking, holding space for your father's experience and also your experience as a second generation Chinese Americas, right? Thinking of your dad as a Chinese costarricense born in the Americas and you as a second generation, how you are, and also in different generations of processing so much of experience and, and curious how, you know, future generations will also of yours will also process that. So let's transition a little bit. Your father and your mother meet in Costa Rica they move to Chicago. You and your sister are born there. And you grew up in the northern suburbs of Chicago, a pretty monochromatic place. A lot of Jews, a lot of Jewish communities. So I hear when, your mom, when you're saying that your mom was a little bit worried about you not having access to Jewish community. You certainly have it in the northern suburbs. Uh, but it's not necessarily an easy place to stand out, an easy place to be different. So would you tell us a little bit about what your process was like in being different in a place that is very homogenous and what it was what, and what your experience was like in holding on to, or at times wanting to let go of your multifaceted identity. Yeah. My experience in the Northern suburbs of Chicago was as a child, like an anxious little kid, like was an experience of not fitting in, in a neat racial category. You know, in many ways, I like was very lucky, never struggled materially. We didn't, we always had enough to eat, was able to like buy all my school supplies always. So it was was a matter of like socially, how do I categorize myself within this like very limited sliver of the world of the Northern suburbs of Chicago, where, yeah, it's very interesting that Judaism and Jewishness was almost dominant. Like maybe, maybe not dominant, but definitely prevalent. And yet I wasn't, I didn't really connect with the with the dominant version of Judaism in in the north of, northern suburbs of Chicago. It's it's this like white Judaism. It's a little bit more new money. That's like really excited, I think, to assimilate to a lot of the oppressive versions of white supremacy and like like excited to to finally have the power in the situation. You know, like, like which I can understand, but I think it's like the wrong choice for our Jewish communities to to be comfortable in our in our conditional power at the moment. Like I think 
that's not the path towards justice, but that's like the very small experience I had with the Jewish community in the in the nor- northern sub- suburbs of Chicago, which is just like comfort in the wealth and just like maybe just the relief that like finally the, the Jews have made it to this level of whiteness so they don't have to struggle anymore. As a Jewish person who's not white, I hadn't made it to that level. So I like wasn't able to connect with that Jewish community, even though as like an adult, I like feel so connected to the Jewish community and feel like really excited to like keep living and, and acting in it. But just like the small experience I had in the, the community that I grew up in was not the Jewish community that I think supported my Jewish identity or my, and my thriving. For my Costa Rican and Chinese identity, yeah, it was, it, it was hard to find peers who shared my identity. So I, I found peers in other ways. You know, I found peers that are, had similar senses of humor or maybe they also had like funky mixed identities and also felt maybe a little bit more like outsiders, but not in the same way that there was like a clique of Chinese, uh, Costa Rican Jewish people in my high school. Cause it's just, there isn't. I've been having these like racialized experiences. I mean, obviously my whole life, but like a, an early, like concrete version of like thinking about where do I fit in, in the very limited categories of Highland Park is again, that dual language classroom I grew up in, which was like, was mixed with native Spanish speakers and monolingual speakers who were coming in and learning Spanish for the first time. And so like also pretty mixed racially, a lot of the social groups I think were defined by gender and race. And so there was like the white girl group that hung out and Latina girls group that hung out. And I found my way with the white girl, which is like interesting that how did I make that choice? Why did I make that choice? Like, you know, I am Latina and and that's not never something my parents like tried to tried to have me reject it all. They like really tried to have me value for, for some with, with the mix of pressures in that kindergarten or first grade classroom. I'm not sure what they were, but I, I found myself making friends with white girls. And it was interesting. The boys, the boys group was mixed. There was just one boy, the, all the boys hung out. It was all the Latino and the white boys all hang out. Yeah. I mean, I certainly, I certainly can't ever fault a kid for just wanting to be accepted, for wanting to be seen, for wanting to be loved Growing up is tough. It is really tough, especially in a place where, where you recognize that you might be the only one who looks a certain way or who comes from a certain place or who speaks a different language at home. It's not easy. It's not easy. And so I certain like everything you just said, I've been nodding my head and, and really trying to relate to a lot of what you were saying, because I know to some to some degree, it's also my story and likely the story of so many people who were born outside of the United States or whose racial ethnic identity largely differed from the community in which they were growing up. So thank you for sharing all of those pieces. And there was something you mentioned a little bit at the end. I think it's an interesting study about like the boys and the girls going to different places. I don't know. I think that's certainly someone who's interested in gender-based behavior to look at. And one of the things that you said that made me think about some other things was the relationships between you know young men and young women growing up in a place that is pretty monochromatic, but also that oftentimes in these places, people of color, specifically women of color, are hypersexualized, they're fetishized. And I'm, a, I'm curious because in your experience, both as a Latina, but also as a Asian American, Chinese American woman, you know, I'd love for you to draw some light on that. Like, was that something that you ever felt was being told to you, you know, or did you ever feel like you were being sexualized because of those dual identities or one of those identities? And curious if there's, if any of that has been part of your experience. Yeah, I definitely have been having those experiences all my life, which is kind of shocking to reflect on. 
it, I've, I've also, I've been like having the experience of like of se- the over-sexualization of Asian women. Also like a lot about my family structure and like who I am also has been challenging that a little bit. Like, so just for my parents, for example, like it's, it's an Asian man and, and a white woman and growing up, it's like other families I saw that were mixed, you know, this is, this is just like from afar. So like what I can see is like mixed white and Asian, always exciting to see, you know, another mixed family. And then more often than not, it was a white man and an Asian woman. So already it's like, okay, like a slightly different version of the, the typical white Asian mix in the northern suburbs of Chicago in like a very, in a, in a community with a high Jewish population, there's this understanding that like Jewish boys will chase after Asian women or like obsessed with Asian women. And I had heard that from like a very, very young age always and was always confused about it, especially as a young child. I like didn't understand how to relate to that. Like I was lucky enough, like as like an actual like young woman didn't feel like I was experiencing any overt over-sexualization from my peers in high school or in college. But as a kid, I would hear this kind of messaging about um, that Jewish boys are obsessed with Asian women from the parents of my peers, the the mothers of other either women, other of other little girls or the mothers of little boys would be like, Oh, like Hannah's going to have so many boyfriends when she's older. Like she's going to be so lucky. Like she's going to be so desired. And it was so confusing because I also had this internalized understanding that I wasn't desirable because I wasn't white or like that I wasn't desirable because, you know, I had a you know, wide face and, and a monolid and I like, didn't know how to put on eyeliner, like this understanding was like the Eurocentric beauty standards were internalized and I felt ugly because of that. So that felt bad. And then also when moms would tell me that boys would find me really attractive because I'm Asian felt confusing and icky, but also maybe a little bit like, Oh, okay. Like people can still find me desirable and like people can find me desirable even not even in spite of my monolith or because I'm Asian, but because I'm Asian, like as a young co- child, that, that was a little bit exciting. Now it was like really sad and like so icky that that was something that was calming and comforting for me because for so long I just like felt ugly because of Eurocentric beauty standards, but, but it was there. Thank you, Hannah. I, I really appreciate everything you just went into. Um, I want to note that everything you just said is something that we should all be paying attention to because when we think about the messages that adults give to children, you know, children pick those up and either repeat them, hold on to them. And I don't think anything you said is surprising in the, in the sense that you getting those messages of desirability as both icky and confusing and is also affirming because in a world in which we're constantly taught to doubt who we are, there's those little messages that make us just feel better. And that, of course, that comes as you've come to realize and you've said, you know, it's icky and it comes at the expense of your own self-worth and and kind of really breaking barriers for women and for people of color. And and at the same time, you know, that that when you're a child, you really just want to be fit. You just want to fit in. You just want to be seen and you want to be loved. And so I appreciate you kind of recounting that and doing so with such humility and and doing so with such introspection. Now we've run out of time, which always happens when we're so deep into these conversations. But before we go, one of the things I, that I love talking to you about are our names. I always like to say when people ask like, what's your identity? What's your background? 
And I, and I kind of let them know, like, this is how I identify. People just look at me and I'm like, yes, I know my identity. It's long. Like my name is long. You know, there's a lot of history. There's a lot of richness, but I love that your name is also one that is long, that there's a hyphen. I love hyphens and I love the story that comes with it. So if you, if you could give our community a little bit more of an insight as to your name, the story of your name and why it's important to you. Yes, I would love to talk about my name. And I, I love what you, oh, I've heard you say earlier too, that like the story behind your identity is long, like your name, which is like, I'm going to use that because the story behind my identity is long, like my name, which is very long. So already with my first name for Hana, it's spelled, it's spelled like Hannah, it's spelled H-A-N-N-A-H, but it's pronounced Hana, which is all related to like revealing my, my Costa Rican identity, like revealing that my name is pronounced Hana and not Hannah is like another level of intimacy. I like get to share with people like, oh, once we get off email, once we actually start talking, I'm like excited to tell you that my name is pronounced Hana. So like another connection I get to make when establishing relationships. I'm named after my grandfather on my mother's side. So my, my Jewish grandfather, he was, he was, he died when my Mom was a child and his name was Howard. So I'm named Hannah for the H after Howard, but it's pronounced Hannah because um, my family wanted all of my Costa Rican family to be able to pronounce it. And, you know, the A, Hannah is like kind of impossible vowel for most people outside of, I think, like American English to pronounce. My middle name is Sophia. It's spelled with an S instead of a PH, also to spell in the Spanish way. And then my last name really I demonstrates the traveling of my ancestors and all the different immigration stops they've had to go through and, and have had to tweak their names because of the, the countries they're entering in. So my last name is Chongkan Euro, and it's hyphenated. I have two last names because it's following the, the Latin American, the Costa Rican tradition that you get uh, one last name from your mother and one last name from your father. And the Latin American tradition is father's last name, mother's last name. So that's the way that's my last name. So Chongkan is my father's last name. It is Chinese, but Chinese last names only have one syllable. So already Chongkan, they're showing like something's going on there. And the story behind Chongkan is that when my grandfather, my, my dad's father immigrated from China to Costa Rica, his name was Chong as a first name and Khan as a last name. And then when he immigrated to Costa Rica, they squished his first and last name together to become his new last name, Chong Khan. And his first, he was given a new first name, Antonio. So he went from Chong Khan to Antonio Chong Khan. And so that's, that's my father's last name. And then Euro used to be Yurovsky, then came through Ellis Island, was chopped and just became Euro. And so now my last name is Chong Khan Euro. Like me and my sister are the only people in the world who have that very, very specific last name that tells the story of so many paths of immigration and migration. And people are always confused by it, but like... It's my last name and I've had it my whole life. So I don't really know if I want to change it. I don't have the same last name as either of my parents. Like my, my father's last name in the U.S. is just Chongkhan in the Costa Rica. In Costa Rica, it's Chongkhan Chan. My mother's last name is Euro. We are a family and we feel like a family. We don't all have the same last name and we have been able to thrive that way. So I don't feel so concerned about that. But I don't think I would want to change my name. And you shouldn't. I love your name. I love the story behind your name. I love how you've just painted a picture that you can have a different name than your parents or your kids and still be a family. So I, I carry that. There's My heart is smiling. I just appreciate everything that you brought into this conversation. So once again, thank you for everything, Hannah. It's been a pleasure to have you here. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Hannah. Your story is a reminder that no two Latin Jewish stories are alike. And therefore, it is important that we continue to elevate as many Latin Jewish stories as possible. To all of our listeners, thank you for your love and encouragement. We are thrilled to be back for a second season, and we wouldn't have been able to do this without your support. 
New episodes will be released every Friday from October 1st through December 17th. For more information, please visit jutina.org. Gracias to Fuente Latina for being an incredible partner and co-sponsoring five episodes of season two of our Voces podcast. Los queremos mucho. Until next time. Ciao.